Welcome to Murder Most Foul, a podcast devoted to exploring murder cases of our time. Some solved, some unsolved, but all fascinating and guaranteed to raise the hair on the back of your neck. I'm your host, Jim Solonowski. This episode I call Daddy Dearest. In this episode, we examine a cold case, a very cold case. And to help us better understand this grisly axe murder that happened almost 38 years ago in Brighton, New York, a suburb of Rochester, is Dennis O'Brien. At that time, he was a local TV news producer in Rochester. So, Dennis... Tell us, tell us about that night, the night of this axe murder. Uh, it was a Friday night. It was very cold, as February in Rochester tends to be. It was snowing. Again, not an unusual occurrence. And I was sitting at the desk closest to the managing editor. And behind the managing editor's chair were police and fire scanners, which was common in every newsroom. So that if some emergency happened, you would know as soon as the police or fire knew. And we had sent out a crew to get weather footage, you know, bad driving conditions, the the usual. And There wasn't much else going on. There was no real big story dominating the news. What happened was we could pick up on the scanner that there was something going on in Brighton, New York, which was, for the most part, a very nice but somewhat sleepy suburb of of Rochester. And we thought, what, what is going on? And there was activity, but it was vague in its description. And then we hear that there's an ME truck, medical examiner truck, called to an address over there. So the decision was made to have uh, a car camera people swing by that address and uh, see what was going on. And that's when the story really started to break, was that night. Uh, Friday night. By Saturday morning, it had hit the newspapers. And that's when everybody woke up and saw that lurid headline of saying, axe murder. Uh, Wow. There's no two words in combination that are much more powerful than that in terms of getting your attention. What happened that night uh, was that Jim Krausneck, the husband of the victim, came home from his job at Kodak, and he came home somewhere in the neighborhood of five o'clock and entered the home, didn't know why the lights were not on, where the uh, his wife was, etc., walked upstairs and discovered his wife in bed 
with an axe in her head. And their young daughter, Sarah, was in her bedroom, just down the hall, a few steps down the hall, um, huddled beneath the blanket with two sweaters put on badly um, because she had dressed herself. And he then runs, grabs Sarah and runs out of the house and across the street to a neighbor and says, you know, my wife's been murdered, call the police, you know, and so forth. That begins an incredible saga of crime uh, that was unparalleled in, in Rochester. And for that part, pretty much anywhere else. It was a story that had what we thought at that time was, a, uh, was an ending that was unpredictable, that, that was out of place. No one could, who knew Brighton or knew just the general area or even the couple could put those together with the words axe murder. It made no sense and immediately became the overwhelming topic of conversation by everyone. No matter where you were, what you were doing, you could be coming out of church, you could be having coffee in a diner, you could be at work, you could be on the phone with your aunt. No matter what it was, the first item of conversation was, what's going on with that? What do you think? How did this happen, etc. And it was assumed after a while that the prime suspect was the husband. James Krausnick. What was the physical state of the crime scene like uh, when the police arrived? The crime scene was basically in two places, on two floors. The murder on the top floor. On the bottom floor, there was some kind of what appeared to be evidence of an attempted burglary. There were materials from the house whether it was silverware, good china, I'm not sure what it was, um, that was piled up on the dining room floor. And at that point, you thought, well, then maybe this was a burglary that got interrupted and the wife, Kathy, was the victim of having discovered this taking place in her house. However, there were a few things that didn't make sense in relation to the burglary motive. The material was never taken from the house. Kathy was asleep upstairs. Why would you go searching the house after you have been in the house, gathered your material, and then you're like, Oh, wait a minute. Before I leave, let me check to see if there are any witnesses. 
And even if you went upstairs and she was sound asleep, wouldn't you tiptoe out of there? Um, and, and again, who knows what the deal was with poor little Sarah in her room? Was she sound asleep at the time? Uh, hopefully so. But if you then, whether you carried the axe in with you or you discovered the body, according to this robbery scenario, if you discover the body and say, wow, there's a potential witness, I should kill her. Then you go down to a house, through the house that you don't know, into a garage, and you find an axe. You go back into the house, you go up and you kill the person in the bed sound asleep. And then, yes, you would be, you would be covered in blood and there was no trail of it. You would then go down the stairs and with the bloody axe in your hand, well, no, I'm sorry, it was in Kathy at that point, unfortunately. You would go down the stairs and then, you, you know, that stuff isn't that valuable anyway. I'm going to get out of here and then leave. So we're left to believe that a stranger or someone with a previous grudge came into the house, tried to rob it, were successful to a point, and then decided to add murder to the list of things to do that day, and then leaves having accomplished only the murder and leaving the robbery bounty behind. It never made sense. Never made sense. And I think one of the other things that, again, as I went through the list of things that didn't make sense to me, that the that I think you you alluded to it, but the axe belonged to them. It was in their garage. So it's I mean, I wouldn't expect a robber to walk around with an axe as you know, you can have a knife, you can have a gun. Maybe you don't want to have anything because you don't want something bad to happen. You're just going to run if you're caught. Uh, but uh do you know, it's just, this just popped in my head. Do you know whether the garage was semi-detached or attached? It was attached. It's attached. So he breaks in the door, the back door, and then probably then can go just to the right to a door that's not open or to the left, depending on where the door is, and goes into the garage, which may or may not have a light at that hour. And, oh, look, an axe. Let me take that in the house with me. So that's. Yeah. And, and, uh, and. Another part of that is that, um, again, you're going out of your way in unfamiliar territory to find an unusual choice for a weapon. And it's not as though you've been threatened. So what what is going on here? And when you enter the garage from the little walkway between the, the house and the, and the garage, um, you then have to go to the far end of the garage, if I'm not mistaken, to where the axe is located. Now, between the dining room and the end of the garage, you would think that if you wanted to be prepared for defense or offense, you're going to grab a knife out of the kitchen drawer. Why are you going to look for an axe or think, Oh, this is a better idea. 
nothing, nothing made sense as far as that whole robbery scenario and a stranger randomly choosing this at that time and then doing those actions. I would think that uh, given the husband's uh, alibi that he was at work, that um, time of death would be something uh, fairly important, no? Time of death was, right from the very beginning, was crucial to making a case. And keeping in mind that circumstances were very different. 1982 doesn't sound that long ago, although... This February 19th, it will be 38 years since uh, the actual murder took place. But regardless, that doesn't sound like the world was back in the Stone Age or something. But comparatively, it was in terms of so many things of cell phones and surveillance cameras and uh, Internet and so on and so on. In other words, there are so many ways you can get caught now that you could get away with then. And one of the things that they tried to figure out was if Jim says he left for work somewhere in the neighborhood of 7 a.m., I think he said earlier than that, um, then that meant that she would have had to have been murdered somewhere right after that probably they think i mean the because the the girl wasn't harmed uh, so and and she definitely would have been up and around and so forth so uh if you if you figure that sarah's asleep she's uh kathy was asleep when she was murdered uh it's probably early in the morning and maybe right after Jim left. Again, the, the burglary theory was that maybe the uh, guy waited for him to, to actually leave. The time of death originally was pretty broad. And it included, I think it might have gone up to, and I'd have to check notes to, to find this for sure, but I think it might have gone up to like about 8.30 in the morning or something like that. So time enough for Jim to have left and be far removed from the scene, somebody else to come in and perpetrate this terrible act. But um, when this came up for reinvestigation and everybody from the ME uh, and uh, Michael Bodden, the famous uh, forensic and medical examiner, got involved. They began looking more closely at the TOD, the time of death. And they said, could it have been earlier, perhaps? Is there any way of guaranteeing that it was earlier, etc.? And all I know is that Dr. Bodden extended the time frame for the time of death and made it earlier rather than later, and thus making it more difficult for Jim's alibi of I wasn't there. 
And so soon after, uh, he didn't stay in town very long, did he? After, I mean, he wasn't charged. Uh, and so obviously, quote unquote, free to go. So he, my uh, memory of what I read that he left town and went back to Michigan fairly soon after. Is that correct? That is correct. Uh, and there is uh, an interesting sidebar to that. What happened on Friday night, the night of the murder, was that the neighbors took him and Sarah in and called the police. <clears throat> police came. At the same time, Jim called his parents back in uh, the Detroit area in Michigan. And what wasn't uh, expected was that the parents immediately got in the car and drove to Rochester. And they arrived somewhere, let's just say midnight. And Jim had answered some questions, but not many. Um, also, Sarah hadn't been spoken with. And the way the police left it on Friday night was, we need to talk to you. We'll, out of respect for what you and your daughter have gone through, it's horrific. Go be with your parents try to get some sleep. We will talk first thing in the morning. They found out the motel that they had, uh, the parents had already arranged. And the police, not re I, I was going to say reluctantly, they, they weren't happy that they were leaving this unfinished. Uh, but at the same time, just humanity and compassion would tell you, look, this can wait. And they had the guarantee from the family that they would be there first thing in the morning. The detective showed up the next morning and they had checked out. They had never really stayed in the room. They had gone back to the motel and then started driving. All of them. All of them. Oh, so it's the, the two parents and James and Sarah. Correct. Just... They went back to James's parents' place in uh, the Detroit area. So I understand that the uh, police did follow him uh, out to Detroit, um, but at that point he was not going to talk to them and certainly was not coming back to New York. Uh, so what did the police do at that point? There wasn't much they could do. And so they had to return and kind of regroup and figure out where do we go from here? Meanwhile, Jim hired um, a lawyer in Rochester, uh, whose name escapes me at the moment, but a well-known criminal defense lawyer. And he kind of shielded Jim, said, look, if you want to talk to him, um, I've got to be there. And the questioning is going to be limited, and he's not coming back here to do it. Um, and there were all kinds of restrictions. And basically, it came down to, if you want them, you got to arrest them. And uh, as a consequence, I believe Jim came back uh, at the end of 
like right around the two week anniversary of the murder. And that was to meet with his lawyer, to have the lawyer say, Jim's not talking, um, and to make arrangements to have anything in the house shipped out to Michigan. And then he was out of there. So he made a quick appearance back in the city. By that two-week anniversary, however, the hum of rumor had reached a roar. It was just amazing. And working in a TV newsroom and knowing people at the other stations, my former wife was working at Channel 8, and I was working at Channel 13. We both had friends at Channel 10, etc., and we were all like on the phone with one another going, what are you guys doing? What are you guys doing? You know, oh, my God, have you heard this, et cetera? And the people on the newspaper, the people at uh, WHAM radio, et cetera. Everybody was convinced that he was going to Jim Krausnick was going to be arrested on that day that he returned to Rochester. He wasn't. And for all of the reasons, legal and practical, that you can go through the list, he wasn't going to just turn himself in. And nor am I suggesting he should have, because that's not the way things are supposed to work. But the, the story, the process, the investigation was at a logjam right from the start, because... There was nothing they could do to prove otherwise. They didn't have anything substantial other than circumstance that would say it's got to be him. So the fact that now, almost 38 years later, it's gone full circle and now he has been indicted for the murder of his wife and he will stand trial, etc. It's just... It's just an amazing turn of events. And although not necessary to convict or even to charge someone um, the issue of motive, but I'm sure they wanted to try to come up with one. Now, certainly when it's a husband and wife issue, uh, domestic violence uh, is certainly a top motive. And I do understand that he was having some trouble at Kodak because he had lied about uh, having a Ph.D., and um, they caught him and sort of told him, you know, you have to uh, complete this Ph.D. or because you, you know, lied on your application, uh, we are going to terminate you. This was a tough topic between Kathy and Jim, because here's a, a mother in a city that she doesn't know in the middle of winter where people are pretty much isolated until May, you know, it's, it's not like other places where spring might arrive in March when it's supposed to. No, we've still got snow drifts, but she's there with a little girl all by herself going nuts the majority of the day and hoping that this is going to pay off, you know, 
we moved from a place with friends and teaching, et cetera. And, you know, I, I was hoping for a better life here, but you're telling me that um, you're not sure what's going on with your job. So we, we're not privy to these conversations. Nobody knows what uh, Jim and Kathy talked about or how tense it got or how loud it got, perhaps. We don't know. Uh, but it was almost certainly uh, a cause of great consternation because Jim was lying. And I don't know what he was telling Kathy as far as the situation. Was he telling her, was he being open with her and saying, look, if I don't have this PhD to give them in another three weeks, they're going to cut off my job. And here we are in, in Brighton, New York, and in the middle of winter, and I'm unemployed, and you're not working, and we've got a small daughter. What happens? Now, you're probably too modest to mention this, but I am aware that um, you almost single-handedly kept this uh, case um, alive, of, in a sense, maybe if not in the public eye. Certainly, you kept in contact with the authorities and with uh, Kathy's family. The thing that struck me was that uh, this was a family who must have had a really tough time, especially in the beginning. They were defensive of uh, Jim Krausnett because they couldn't imagine that he would kill their daughter. They knew Jim, they, they, and they, you know, the father of their granddaughter and niece and so forth. Uh, this it just was incomprehensible. That, that Jim could have done it. So they were proponents of the stranger or somebody else somehow has a connection and came in and did this. Um, and I, I think it didn't take too long that for them one by one almost to kind of turn around. Um, changing their defense or retreating from that defense because of Sarah. You don't want to lose that connection. And Jim was definitely the type who would like, all right, if you don't, if you believe I'm guilty, I'm not bringing my daughter over to listen to that stuff. Um, let's fast forward to just before uh, the arrest. Did you see this coming? Were you in contact? Kathy's family uh, and I had stayed in contact and Mark Henderson and I stayed in contact. Um, and I would talk to him every few months. He'd say, all right, nothing happening yet, but there is a possibility that the, um, the DA might present it to the grand jury, et cetera. And they're, they're meeting now to talk about that possibility, et cetera. We've gotten the DNA back from the FBI lab. We've gotten this back uh, from uh, another investigation, et cetera. So he kept me apprised all along uh, once I had that initial conversation with him in 2015. And from that point on, we stayed in contact and he did a boatload of work. And uh, a lot of it really was uh, organizational and it was the kind of thing where he used uh, a DVD copy of the story that I did as his pitch to the FBI 
as his explanation to the DA. Here's the case. Here's what happened. Here's the, you know, what we're talking about basically in 11 minutes or however long it is. And um, he said it, it, it turned out to be a great introduction to um, to people working on the case, to people interested in the case, etc. And he, uh, as a consequence, always credited me with having something important to do with getting the case up and going again. And uh, so I heard that the grand jury was very possibly going to be getting this case that they had assigned uh, an ADA um, and the grand jury would be getting the case and then the fingers would be crossed will they serve up an indictment and if they do what happens then so I got a heads up from him uh, the morning of the announcement that uh, there was an indictment and then right after that spoke to other people like Doug Amblich from Channel 13 and so forth. Now, earlier you had mentioned uh, Michael Bodden, who is a uh, high-profile uh, ME type, um, and he has been uh, come. He has come into the case uh, through some door, and he went to tell us a little bit about uh, what he adds to uh, to the Crossman trial. Um, he was called in to look at all of the available medical information on the case. Now, who called him in, who paid for his involvement? I'm not entirely certain. It might have been the family. Um, I, I really don't know, and nor did I pursue asking about it, only because I recognize Michael Bodden's name. I've done a number of stories in which he was a uh, lead participant in terms of what he said seemed to, uh, in effect, kind of open up or in some cases go against what had already been found or uh, they thought confirmed. But Baden said, no, if you take a look at this or that, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't play right. Baden was in the news down here, well, nationally as well, um, with the Jeffrey Epstein case. Uh, just last week, and uh, it was on 60 Minutes, was that uh, his results, autopsy results, looking at uh, Epstein's death and the cause of it, etc., he completely turned it on its head. So what he did, what Michael Bodden did with the Kathy Schlosser case was he looked at it and said, as far as I know, the time of death here is the thing that we need to concentrate on because it is that that will determine whether Jim is a suspect or not. And um, to my understanding, he expanded the range in the earlier direction so that it might have happened overnight and not after Jim left to go to Kodak that day. And if it happened overnight, that would make more sense. A, she would be asleep. B, 
if this would actually was the case, then Jim could have committed the murder and cleaned up because the cleanup was so extensive that there were no fingerprints. You would expect fingerprints of the people who lived in the house, but not even on the kitchen cabinets were there any fingerprints of anyone. This was scrubbed clean. This was not an accidental, random, hurried kind of crime situation. No, this was, we don't know how long, planned and carried out, I guess, rather successfully for all these years. So the trial is scheduled uh, for June of this year, 2020, and uh, I uh, plan to come up to my hometown of Rochester, New York, and attend, uh, hopefully see some of it uh, if they make allowances for the media. And I'm assuming uh, you're going to be up there too, Dennis. Um, is after all these years, uh, 30, 37 years, uh, is there still local interest in the case? What the family has wanted all along and what I think they finally feel as though they might get is a shot at justice. The, the just, definitely we know which way they want this to go. But even if it doesn't go that way, with a conviction as the ending of it, they are still satisfied that he has been called up and forced to defend himself against the charge that everybody has waited for so long to have happen.